Good morning. Good morning. Um, good morning from my living room to your living room. And as you come together to worship Jesus, uh, grab your Bible and flip it to the Gospel of John. John chapter 4 is where we're going to be camping out for a little while today. So get there. As you get there, I have a confession to make. I'm a sucker for commercials. They, they make me want things that I previously didn't want, and, and I know it's happening to me, but I can't deny it. Like, if a commercial was about burgers, we'll probably have burgers that night. I can, I can watch a commercial about chips, and I'll probably go and buy some chips, maybe, if, if they're available at the store, right? Sarah knows this, and that's why she gives me a grocery list to stick to or else. Now that we're all stuck at home and probably watch way too much TV, we probably see a lot of commercials. And one commercial that keeps coming up was the Sprite commercial. And I have not tasted Sprite in years, but each time they would say, Obey your thirst. And I was like, I'm thirsty, and I will obey. And what they're telling us is, drink Sprite, and Sprite will quench your thirst. And they have been saying this since the 90s because that is their slogan slogan but the thing is what they are speaking to in us is something that is a lot bigger than sprite they're speaking to the thing in us that Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones sang about in the 80s I can't get no satisfaction I can't get no satisfaction because I try I try I try I try so Sprite and McJagger are speaking to, their, to a reality that has always existed in us, trying to find satisfaction, trying to quench our thirst. Why? Because we feel discontent. We are thirsty. And this conversation about satisfaction and quenching our thirst is not new. It's been a human problem since the beginning of humanity. And we'll see Jesus dealing with it in our passage today. So let's dive in and start in John chapter 4 verse 7. Talking about this this topic. So verse 7 says, A woman from Samaria, Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into a city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So before this verse 7, John, the writer of the gospel, is setting up the context of the story. Remember in chapter 1 when Pharisees came to cross-examine John the Baptist? It was because John the Baptist was baptizing some folks, right? Well, in verse 1 of chapter 4, we learn that more and more people were following Jesus, and Jesus' disciples were baptizing even more people than John the Baptist. And the Pharisees were rallying their posse and about to come and cross-examine Jesus. So instead of having this confrontation with Pharisees, Jesus leaves Judea and goes to Galilee. To get to Galilee, you have to go through an area called Samaria. And about six hour, that is midday, Jesus is sitting at a well, Jacob's well, and, and a Samaritan woman comes to draw water from the well. And there are two things right off the bat that we need to address. First, why is she drawing water at midday? Uh, the reason I ask this question is because in this culture, people would wake up early or, or wait till evening when the temperatures cool off and go to the well and draw water, and they did this together. 
It was this social event, and yet this woman goes in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, to get water. And she's going alone. She's avoiding people on purpose. The second thing to notice is that she's a Samaritan woman. Jews and Samaritans didn't get along. In fact, they hated each other. Their hatred goes all the way back to when the kingdom of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern and southern kingdom, and that started the division, but at first they still considered each other as part of the same family. During this time, Samaria was brought into the northern kingdom. Then in 721 BC, the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom. They took many of the Jews' captives back to Assyria, but some were left behind. The Jews who were left behind in that region of Samaria end up intermarrying with colonists from Assyria and Babylon, and they begin to worship new gods. When the Jews returned from the exile, the Samaritans were ready to welcome them back, but the Jews viewed them, they viewed the Samaritans as polluted lawbreakers because they had intermarried. And so by the time Jesus is having this conversation with the Samaritan woman, the Jews and Samaritans have been on opposite sides of the battles and committed war crimes against each other. Jews would have avoided Samaritans at all costs. They would travel at night through Samaria so they didn't have to see any people or see any Samaritans. They wouldn't drink with them. They wouldn't eat with them. In other words, Jews had absolutely no dealings with Samaritans. So that's the second thing to note here. And the last thing is that from this passage that she's a woman. Rabbis and women didn't talk to each other. In fact, rabbis didn't even greet women in public. Yet Jesus is asking for a drink, meaning he's not only talking to her, he's asking her for a favor. And this woman, understanding the cultural dynamics, says, How is it that you, a Jew, asking for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? In other words, she understands all the cultural dynamics and she understands that this is unusual. And in verse 10, Jesus answers her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. In other words, Jesus is saying, you have no idea who you're talking to. You have no clue that I'm the giver of living water. And at this point in our story, we need to stop and talk about the living water. Could Jesus simply be referring to clean, drinkable water, flowing water, instead of the stagnant water in the well? Well, you probably know by this point in the book of John that no, Jesus probably had a much deeper meaning to his words. He's alluding to something much more than, than the well water. And if we look at the Old Testament, we see this idea of living water over and over and over. So let me run through a few passages to show how Jesus is using this term living water to mean a whole lot more than flowing water. So first in Psalm 36, 9 says, For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. So the writer of the psalm is saying that God is the fountain of life. In other words, Israelites had the living water open and available to them. But in Jeremiah 2, 13, Jeremiah describes how they have forsaken, forsaken the living water. In verse 13, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, the hues of cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that have hold no water. 
In other words, they have they had the living water that Jesus is talking about, but instead of drinking freely from, from the fountain of life that God offered, they trusted themselves to find satisfaction somewhere else. And that is the heart of sin, right? Believing will find satisfaction in something other than God. But the living water that can and will satisfy us and never run dry can only be found in God's gift, the person, Jesus Christ. So upon hearing this in verse 11, the woman is slightly confused and says, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and then the well is deep, but where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He, he gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And in verse 13, Jesus says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him the spring of water welling up to eternal life. So she's like, what, what are you going to use to get this living water? You don't have anything to use to get, get the water. And Jesus flat out tells her that this water from this well will not satisfy. And in fact, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And the water that Jesus will give is eternal life. In John 7, Jesus spells this out even more. He says this in John 7, chapter, verse 37 through 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow river of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit has not yet had not been given because Jesus has not yet glorified. So Jesus is saying, if you feel incomplete, if you feel like something is missing, like you're thirsty, stop looking elsewhere. Come to me and be satisfied. Nothing else is enough. Jesus is enough. And when we believe that Jesus is enough, then we will receive the Spirit of God. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. In verse 15, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So you see, she's, she's finally starting to get, the, this woman is finally starting to get it. But the latter part of that verse is very revealing, right? She says, or have to come here to draw water. In other words, she says, yes, give me this water so that I won't thirst again. But, but I feel so tired coming here in the middle of the day to draw water. She doesn't, want, she doesn't want to go to the well alone anymore. She doesn't want to go to the well when it's so hot the middle of the day. In this phrase, you almost see how tired she is, how exhausted she really is. She's tired probably of being the center of gossip. She's probably tired uh, of being ignored. She's tired probably of being mocked. She's tired of being talked about. I don't want to walk here in the shame anymore, and I am thirsty. And Jesus says, said to her, go, call your husband, in verse 16, and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. 
this is a hard conversation, right? Like they go back and forth here, and Jesus is going to the heart of her sin. He's bringing her sin to the light. Jesus basically is saying to this woman, you are thirsty, but not for water. You spend your whole life trying to satisfy this craving that you have by chasing after men. And even now you're living with a man who's not your husband and he too will not satisfy. You see, Jesus doesn't address her sin by confronting her actions. He doesn't tell her to stop chasing after men and that she has a problem. He doesn't tell her, I'm the Messiah and you have a problem and you need to stop. No, he addresses her sin by showing the problem of her heart, her longings that are misplaced, her thirst that can't be satisfied. In other words, the action of your sin, whatever it is, has something behind it. Behind it is the problem of your heart. Your longings are misplaced and you are running towards something that can't satisfy you. And here's the thing, these false wells or uh, these false wells do bring short-lived satisfaction. They do. In the screw tape letters, uh, C.S. Lewis calls it an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. And we all have felt that before, right? Like an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. And so let me, let me run through a couple examples, a couple categories for us to, to, to kind of wrap our minds around this. Anyone who has watched pornography before has experienced what C.S. Lewis describes here, more craving and less pleasure. Same thing with substance abuse. It takes more and more of it to get that high, but that high isn't as fulfilling as it was at first. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. The same thing happens in a codependent relationship. As the relationship gets worse, the feeling of needing the other person gets stronger. The person or the person who struggles with pride, the need for more and more applause, but it doesn't seem to satisfy even when the audience grows. Or, or even talk about, let's talk about our self-righteous side. Those who write more and more rules for their life. As they write more and more rules for their life, they find less and less joy in life. And sure, those are just some examples that I just kind of pick. But what are you thirsty for? What are you thirsty for? Especially when hardships come, when COVID-19 strikes, what do you long for or run to? What longings live in your bones that you spend your life trying to satisfy? Maybe it's comfort or security. Like maybe it's beauty or desirability. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's personal goodness. What are you believing will quench your thirst? What is it? This woman's life was moving from one man to another. Jesus points out that he doesn't simply, but he doesn't simply point out her sin, but points to the living water that, that can satisfy. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity and also in his book, The Problem of Pain. He has this, this beautiful quote. Let me read it. All the things that, that, that have ever deeply possessed your soul have been but hints of heaven. 
tantalizing glimpses, promises never quite fulfilled, echoes that died away just as they caught your ear. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Then he continues, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what it means by the offer of holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We look to so many poison wells to satisfy our thirst when Jesus offers a clean, abundant spring. And this woman, uh, the, in this moment, this woman asks Jesus a question, right? So, so they're, they're talking, and she, in this moment, she, she asks the question. And you would think that this question deals with how to get that living water or something along those lines, but instead she asks Jesus a theological question. In verse 20, she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Don't we do this when somebody calls out our sin? When someone calls us out, when, the, when, when we're getting closer to the heart of our sin, when it starts to hurt, usually we put our theological defenses uh, we ask what sounds like a good theological question in that moment. And I think this is, a, is our last attempt of our flesh to fight against a full surrender to God. So we deflect and start questioning, why would you allow evil? Or why didn't you make me more aware of your presence? And didn't you say you wouldn't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can handle? Or whatever other theological question we might wrestle with. And I see... I see this happening all the time. And pay attention to the timing of your deep theological questions because usually they come not because you truly want to grow in knowing God, but they come when you need to surrender to God, when you have some sin that needs to die. That's her question. The question was, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. So Samaritans combined their worship with the worship of the Assyrians, and that greatly offended the Jewish people. And the Jewish people believed that God's dwelling place was in the temple in Jerusalem, but Samaritans believed it was on this mountain. So our question is basically this, how do we get to God? Where do we meet God? Here or in Jerusalem? How many steps does it take for me to get to God? Who is right, the Jews or the Samaritans? And in verse 21, Jesus said to her, Women, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father and Spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Jesus says, neither. It's not what you can do to get to God. It's not how you can clean yourself up and come to him. It's not some moral form of life. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. This means that for us to be truly 
truly worshiping the Father, we need to receive the testimony of who Jesus truly is. And by receiving that, we will receive the Spirit of God. Jesus is describing salvation here. Believe Jesus is who he says he is. And when you believe this, you receive the Spirit. And hearing upon hearing this, she says, but, 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 but I know the Messiah is coming. Right in verse 25, I know the Messiah is coming, but he, he who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. It's almost as if Jesus is done playing games. He says, I am he, period. You don't need to go to the mountain to worship the Father. You don't need to go to the Jerusalem, to the temple. You go to me to receive the gift of God. And at this point, the woman runs to the town, to the people she was ashamed to see earlier, people that she was avoiding by coming to the well in the middle of the day, and she tells them the Messiah is here. Meanwhile, the disciples had come back, and, and, and they're super confused. Jesus was talking to a woman. She is a Samaritan woman. They brought food back with them, and they're trying to get Jesus to eat it. But Jesus responds, there's a different kind of food that can satisfy. Look around at all the hungry people around you, people who are running towards all the wrong places to try to, try to satisfy themselves. Open your eyes and see that I'm the only gift of God who will satisfy. Come to me, be fulfilled, be satisfied, and invite other hungry people just like you to come and be fulfilled. The one who was thirsty in the beginning of the story is the one who will satisfy everyone's thirst. Why? Why? Because he's not only endured physical thirst, but eventually on the cross he endured spiritual thirst as well, so that we don't have to. In John chapter 19, verse 28 through 30, John writes, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scriptures, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on his branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. See, that was the moment when Jesus received upon himself the undiluted wrath of God. That's what happened on the cross. The wrath of God fell upon Jesus. And Nahum 1.6, a prophet in the Old Testament, so he writes this, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured like fire, and the rock, rocks are broken asunder by him. And in Psalm 22.14-15, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. And Psalm 69, 21 says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. See, Jesus died on the cross, thirsty and suffering, so that thirsty people like you and I can have the living water. He died in torment so that we have the cool water of God's favor. He was laid in the dust of death so that our thirst can be satisfied. 
May we find rest in Jesus. May we find comfort in the one who gives us comfort. May we confess and surrender the places that we have been running to to get satisfaction. May we be filled with Christ. This doesn't mean we won't experience hardship, but it does mean that God is with us and he will never let us go. And in him, we'll find our truest longing met until the day when we will no longer go off searching, but we'll see him face to face. And our longings will find their final fulfillment in him. So let's pray. Father, we come to you. We come to you because of your son who took upon himself the wrath of God. Your wrath fell upon him so that we don't have to experience that. And we can talk to you freely as your children because when we believe in your son who died in our place, we can freely talk to you. God, I, I pray right now that you draw our hearts back to you. And in, in the midst of chaos, there, there's tendency to run to the broken wells. And, and we ask for your spirit to minister to us and, and, and refresh us with this true, fresh living water of you, Jesus. God, we rest in you. Move our hearts to that. Love you. Pray this in your name. Amen.